Leviticus chapter 15 tonight, Leviticus 15, and we're hopefully just going to cover the whole chapter as quickly as humanly possible, so <laughs> let's pray. Lord, it is so good for us to be in church, and God, I want to pray right now in the name of Jesus that anything and everything that would want to distract us our phones, our thoughts, our whatever, Lord, the worries about tomorrow, that none of that would be able to penetrate right now, Lord. The only thing is that we would just be hearing you, seeking you. Lord, just like my wife, just right now, praying for me before I come up here. God, unless you come into our midst, we're just gathering. Unless you're here with us, Lord, we long for more of you, Jesus. And we understand that what we're doing is special. Please don't let us have a, a, a low view of church and a low view of Bible study. I pray we would be on the edge of our seat, Lord, listening for what you might want to say to us tonight and that we would respond appropriately. Lord, shake us out of any lethargy, wake us up, and cause us just to run as hard as we can after you, Lord, in these last days, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. I was getting myself fired up in that prayer right there. So, amen. Guys, as a pastor, as a Bible teacher, and I've been blessed to be able to, to teach the Bible for over 20 years, and there are certain chapters in the Bible when you teach verse by verse that you cannot wait to get to, and this is not one of them. <laughs> Unless you're Mitch, he's like, I, he's like, I can't wait to see how you're going to squirm out of this one. So there will be no squirming. We are going to just take God's word at face value and look at it. And, there, and, and if you haven't read ahead, you're like, what is he talking about? And you're like frantically maybe trying to now. All that to say is it's just one of those chapters that touches on very sensitive topics. We're going to be talking about bodily discharges. And there is a little bit still of a 13-year-old in me that is going to have a hard time. Like, I can't, I, you know what I mean? There's just going to be those moments. I apologize up front. But, you know, the nervous energy. But the reality is, and Pastor Steve kind of, I don't know if he, you caught that in his prayer. He's like, Lord, you cover every area of our life. That was an allusion to this. And uh, that's what God does. And there's actually a good reason for it. But one of the things, even before I get into that, you know, because if you have read this chapter... You, it's one of those where you come away and go like, seriously, why is this in the Bible? Like, why did the Holy Spirit of God ordain this to outlive eternity in his, in his word? You know, like this chapter of all things. But what would help us to understand is context. You'll hear this phrase when you study the Bible a lot. Context is king. And it's important, and I think it will help us to kind of not, you know, What's the, the forest for the trees kind of analogy? If we understand the bigger picture, chapter 15 is wrapping up a smaller section in Leviticus from chapter 11 to chapter 15 that is dealing with the Levitical laws dealing with what would be ceremonially clean and unclean. There'll be more of these sections, don't worry, later on, but that, this section, that's what it's been dealing with, laws of clean and unclean, defiled, undefiled, acceptable, unacceptable. There's been this delineation made. 
And that whole concept, and if you miss this, you're going to miss it all, okay? So don't miss this. That whole concept of what's clean and unclean is rooted in this idea of the holiness of God. That's the big picture. In fact, at the beginning of this section in chapter 11, right around verse 44 and 45, it says something like, um, God is holy, therefore you're going to be holy, or something, I'm not phrasing it correctly. And that happens over and again in this book of Leviticus. It's this declaration that your God is holy, and you as his people are going to be holy. And we can't miss that, or we won't understand the immediate context or how it plays into our life. So again, real quickly in this, when we talk about the holiness of God, this is important. And honestly, I, I think it's something that we need to recapture as the church, to a large degree, personally in our lives. And that is the holiness of God. He's holy. And we all kind of go, yeah, amen. But what does that mean? And we could go on and on and on and on and talk about it, but just think of it like this. When you're talking about the holiness of God, you're talking about the complete other thanness of God, the complete separation of who God is compared to anything or anyone. Sometimes we kind of think of God in terms of like, well, he's the best on the list of a bunch, but he's at the top. No, he's not. not, He's not at the top. He transcends the entire list. Does that make sense? He's not one of good things in your life or one of your priorities. No, he is transcendent of all of it, and he is your only priority. Amen? He is all-consuming. He's not just powerful. He is infinitely powerful. He doesn't just know things. He's infinite knowledge. He's Not just love, he's infinite love, a love that, listen, you cannot compare him to anything or to anyone because in in so doing, you lessen him and you've made him like his creation, but he is so far beyond his creation, amen? And all that we know of him is because he's decided to reveal it to us. He is awesome and holy. And, you know, I was just, while we were doing worship, I was thinking of that scene in Isaiah 6 where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on his throne, and the train of his robe fills the temple. And you ever read that and just seen these? Here's these angelic beings who have been there since, I don't know, eternity past or whenever they were created that are marvelous. Like we would look at them and probably want to be tempted to worship them. And they're flying with two of their wings, two of the wings they're covering their feet, two of the wings are covering their eyes, and all they do is say, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Amen? Point is, is like, I don't even, we're not gonna get a glimpse until we get to heaven. But he's holy. And the idea is, is because he's holy, we've gotta be holy. Now, we're holy in a different way. We're not transcendent above everything. We're not completely separated. But holiness in terms of his people speaks of his people being separated unto him. Separated from everything else and unto him. You know, you think about the tabernacle, the temple. There was utensils spoons, bowls, stuff that were holy. Why? They were created for one reason, to be used in the service of God. So you don't take a golden bowl that was used to put ashes of a heifer in or something, just shooting from the hip there. You don't take it out and like dig a hole in your garden with it. That would be, why? That's that's a holy bowl. What are you doing? That's meant for one, that's that's God's bowl. Does that make sense? Where we're God's people and we're to be set apart from him. And guys, listen, if God is who he says he is, then as his people, There should be none of this, I'll give you part of my life stuff. If he's holy, and he is, and he's who he says he is, and he is, and he's redeemed us and bought us with his own blood, that means we as his people say, 
We are holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, yours. And we will live in a holy way. It doesn't mean we're perfect. Do you guys understand that? But it means the trajectory of our life is there's not one nook and cranny of my heart or my life or my motives that doesn't belong to you. And that is like kind of playing out in front of us, like in a very practical kind of legalistic way. But God is saying, look, every area of your life is there is things I accept and things I don't accept. And if we don't understand and we get all hung up on why, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter why because he's God and he can just decide what he wants to decide. Amen? And so as his people, point being, if I could just make it real simple, we look different, we act different, we talk different, we, we operate different because we're separated unto God. Amen? So I, I'm, I'm, I was passionate about this because it just hit me again today. God, is there any area in my life that I'm treating you like a supplement to my life instead of the supreme one of my life. God, is there, if I treated you like at the top of the list instead of just everything, God, is there any area of my life that I withheld my finances, sexuality, thought life, anything, any area of my life that I've held back or am I wholly yours because you're a holy God? May God, may God examine your heart tonight and mine too as part of this whole process. Now, okay, having said that, Clean and unclean, the holiness of God, that's kind of where this falls. So God is dealing with every area of their life, and now he gets into, you know, he's talked about food. He's talked about, like, contagious diseases, other regulations. Now he's talking about bodily discharge. I'm going to be so tired. I'm already tired of using the word discharge. Anyways, um, the, the chapter is in two chunks, deals with the guys, deals with the ladies. Um, He's going to deal with normal and natural discharge and abnormal discharge and how that all fits into what's clean and what's unclean. And believe it or not, we're going to see Jesus in all this. So hang in there. (laughs) So let's start. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of the uncleanness for his discharge, whether his body runs with his discharge or the body is blocked up by his discharge. It is his uncleanness. I will let your imagination run wild on that. It doesn't say what this is, but it's alluding to some kind of abnormal discharge, secretion, what have you, due to maybe some kind of infection in the reproductive organ or in that neighborhood And if there is anything like that, he says, that causes you to be unclean, ceremonially unable to participate in worship with me or or anything like that. So that's kind of, uh, it doesn't say exactly what he's referring to. It could maybe a lot of things fall under that umbrella. But this is what that means practically. Look at verse 4. Every bed on which the one with the discharge lies shall be unclean. Everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And anyone who touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes, bathe himself in water, be unclean until evening. Whoever touches the body of the one who has the discharge shall wash his clothes, bathe himself in water, be unclean until evening. If anyone, uh, if anyone with the discharge spits on someone who is clean, we'll just say it's an accidental spitting, 
Then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself with water and be unclean until evening. And if he, the saddle on which one uh, with the discharge rides shall be unclean. Whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until evening. Whoever carries such a thing shall wash his clothes, bathe himself in water, and be unclean until evening. Anyone whom the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes, bathe himself in water, and be unclean until evening. And the earthenware vessel that the one with the discharge touches, like a cup or whatever, shall be broken, and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed with water. Do you get the idea there? Guys, anything, if, he, if a man has this particular issue in his life, anything he touches, anyone he touches, anyone that touches anything he's touched is considered unclean ceremonially until evening. Um, I just want to point this out too. Isn't it interesting the, the, the precautions that they went through? Did you notice that? Washing of hands, washing of the materials. If it's an earthen vessel, which is porous and would absorb bacteria, break it, don't use it again. Um, wash this, bathe in that, bathe your body. The reason I point that out is, guys, this is thousands of years before the discovery of germs and bacteria and knowing how to treat um, you know, infectious diseases. We're all very familiar with infectious disease talk, right, at this point in our life. I just love the fact that God was way ahead of the curve on how to deal with all this stuff. Amen? And I like that because, you know, in modern science, we discover things that God has been already known about and been practicing for millennia. And then as people, we discover what God has already said to be true and then take the credit for it like we came up with it. But all along, God is, 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 uh, knows what he's doing. Um, clearly, there's some hygienic, wonderful principles in here, uh, but there's also some spiritual stuff we'll talk about in a second. Let's look at what happens next. Verse 13. When the one with the discharge is cleansed of his discharge, he shall come for himself, account uh, for himself, excuse me, seven days for his cleansing and wash his clothes and bathe his body in fresh water and shall be clean. On the eighth day, he shall take two turtle doves, two pigeons, come before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, give them to the priest. The priest shall use them, one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. The priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord uh, for his discharge. So what that was just talking about is this. Whatever this guy has, and it heals up, he waits a week probably to see if it's healed. And after that week, he goes to the priest with a turtle dove, a couple turtle doves, a couple pigeons, whatever. And they offer those as sacrifice. One is a burnt offering, one is a sin offering. I won't go into that a whole lot right now. Um, it's something kind of lesser than the leprous thing when somebody who's cleansed of leprosy, they would go and, and have that taken care of. But then that would be their cleansing. From that point on, uh, you know, they're clean. They can participate in worship and all of those things. Here's what I want to bring out about this because, actually, let me, let me pause. Let's, let's keep moving a little bit. It gets even a little more spicy. So let's just keep going and then we'll talk. Verse 16. If a man has an emission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water and be unclean until evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until evening. If a man lies with a woman, presumably his wife, and has an emission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until evening. So, self-explanatory. I'm not going to get into details on that. But the point is, if there is that discharge, that emission, 
They are deemed, man and woman, unclean ceremonially until the evening, and they have to bathe themselves, wash themselves. Again, there's probably some great hygienic things in there, of course. Here's the thing, though, that, that comes up when you talk about this, is you have to ask yourself, what is God communicating here? Have you thought about that? Like, why, does there ha- why are they unclean? Why does there have to be a sacrifice? And why the bathing? And why this, again, this, this decision that you're unclean? Because the question is, wait a minute, what if this guy, is God saying that, that what's happening here is sinful? Is he saying what's happening here is dirty? Or No. God's not communicating that. They're, you know, with the guy who has the issue of whatever it is, it's probably no fault of his own, you know, some kind of infection. He has no control over that, so it's not like he sinned. And when you talk about sex between a, a husband and a wife, I mean, clearly the Bible not, not, you know, not only you know, says that's okay, it's encouraged. That's it's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. So why are they deemed unclean? Is God saying there's something wrong? No, clearly that's not it. So what then is God communicating? Again, This goes back to the holiness of God and the brokenness and the uncleanness of man. You see, by virtue of the fact that a man has a disease and has some kind of infection is, guess what, a result of the fall of man. And it's this constant in your face reminder that that with that you can't approach God because God is holy. And even in sexual relationship, you know, again, there's nothing sinful about that within the marriage context. But what God is saying is, is that even in that, there's a brokenness. Even in that arena that is beautiful, natural, and good, and right, there's still a fallenness and a brokenness to that. I read a couple of commentators that even kind of take that further, and they talk about, you know, the reproductive um, process there. Um, where the act of sexual relationship between husband and wife is not bad, but even, you know, as the, the seed and the egg come together and, and all of that, and procreation happens, you've created another human being that has a fallen nature. So every, the point, I think, on a broad stroke way, you could just say this. What's in our face, again, is the fallenness of man and the holiness of God. And God is saying, it's not sinful, not wrong, but it's going to be a constant reminder of your brokenness and your need for redemption, your need for things to be made right. Amen? And, and another little twist on this, I read it, I never thought of this, I thought it was, it's brilliant actually, is by God separating, you know, if there's sexual relationship between a husband and wife, you're unclean means you can't go to the temple, you can't go to the synagogue, you can't participate until that time is passed. You know what that did? It separated sex from worship, which was absolutely not the norm in every culture around them at that time. Does that make sense? With all the pagan gods and all the Canaanite worship, there was this twisted, perverted mingling of the worship of these gods with sexual practices. And it's almost like God is saying, um, we don't do that. And I am holy. And there's, you know, and he's, he's, he's basically making this division. They would have stood out in that, in this culture. Like, that would have been weird to the rest of everyone else. But all that to say is, that, again, this speaks of the fallenness of man. Nothing sinful about their act, but it's the fallenness of man and the holiness of God and the need for a Savior and the need for redemption. Well, let's go further. Um, we're doing great on time, so this is good. Look at verse 19. When a woman has a discharge and... This discharge is her body, uh, in her body is blood. 
Um, she shall be in her menstrual. I keep saying, I keep wanting to say menstrual. Is that, am I saying that right? Because I keep thinking of like a musician. Anyway, <laughs> there's probably a different spelling. Now you guys are going to be all confused too. She's on her period uh, for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. Whoever touches her body, or her bed rather, uh, shall wash his clothes, and he himself um, wash himself in water and be unclean until evening. Whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes, bathe himself in water, and be unclean until evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, uh, when he touches it, uh, he shall be unclean until evening. And if any man lies with her in her menstrual impurity and it comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, not just till evening, but seven days. Every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. So there's not only this uncleanness with her, but if it contacts the man, like he's also unclean. And so you guys get the picture. Now, this is, real, this is actually going to go somewhere really fascinating, trust me. But just think about that. For that week, that woman is not allowed to participate in worship. She is not really, she's supposed to be kind of separate from her husband. She's not touched. You know, everything she touches needs to be washed. She's in this unclean state. And then when it's over, it's over. She's good to go. Um, there's just a washing that takes place. There's no sacrifice needed. But look at this. Just like the man had like an, you know, an anomaly or an abnormal situation, what if that happens with a woman? Look at verse 25. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, listen to this phrase. It's going to come up again. Listen. All the days of her discharge, she shall continue in her uncleanness as in the day of her impurity, she shall be unclean. So I know it's self-explanatory, but I just want to drive it home for a second. If there's something else going on, some other health issue with this woman and she's hemorrhaging, and the point is, is that for as long as that is happening, she continues in that unclean condition that was just described when she's going through her monthly period. Okay, so just tuck that away. You're like, that's great info. Just needed that tonight. Um, but just hold on to that. So, verse 26, uh, same kind of list as with the guys. We'll go through it pretty quickly. You'll get the idea. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. Everything on which she sits, unclean, uh, as it is unclean in her menstrual impurity. Whoever touches these things is unclean, and shall wash his clothes, bathe himself in the water, be unclean until evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, so that she's healed from this, she shall count for herself seven days, another week, and she shall be clean. And on that eighth day, she'll take two turtle doves, two pigeons, bring them to the priest, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and the priest shall use one of them, uh, one of the offerings for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for, the, for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. So kind of same thing. Week goes by. By the way, the eighth day is, the eight is the number of grace in numerology. It's like the new beginning. And so it's like she's healed from it. She waits a week. She brings these sacrifices. She washes. Good to go. Okay, let's keep moving. Now in verses 31 through 33, is just kind of the summary of everything that's just happened. So verse 31, thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness. 
lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle, which is in their midst. So again, guys, there's that picture. God, remember the setting. They're in the desert. The tabernacle has been built. They're hearing the law while they're looking at the tabernacle with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. God's, something of God's tangible presence in front of them. And he's like, look, I'm telling you, I'm giving you these rules so that you don't come into my presence in an unclean way and die. Like they were getting the message. And again, for us, it speaks of our need to be made clean, not outwardly and physically, but inwardly and spiritually. Amen? Do you guys remember that story, by the way, in, in Mark chapter 7, where they were railing on Jesus' disciples because they were not washing their hands before they ate? Do you guys remember that? And it wasn't just washing them with soap. That's not what offended him. No, it was a ritualistic washing that they would kind of do this thing and, and you were supposed to do it so many times before you ate and they weren't doing it and the, the Pharisees are like, your disciples are breaking the traditions and this and that. And You guys remember this? And Jesus got, got on them. Check out what Jesus said in response to that. This is from Mark 7. He called the people again to them. He said, listen to me, all of you, and understand this. There's nothing outside a person that by going into him that can defile him, but the things that come out of him or what defile him. He goes on to say in verse um, 18, and he said to them, you are without understanding to his disciples. Don't you see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not into his heart but his stomach and it's expelled? Listen to this little parenthetical note. Thus he declared all foods clean. By the way, if you are... You know, somebody tries to tell you, oh, we have to live under the dietary laws of the, of the Old Testament. Jesus himself right there said, no, I'm changing everything. It's not what you can eat that's clean or unclean or some outward thing that makes you clean or unclean. Verse 20, he says, um, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, um, out of the heart of a man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And these are the things that come from within. They defile a person. You guys catching that? You see, what's, what's happening outwardly and physically in the Old Testament pictures for us inwardly and spiritually our need to be clean, not so much on the outside, but on the inside first. And guys, this is a warning to the religious because what was Jesus' whole thing with the right-wing conservative religious people of the day called Pharisees. They were the rule keepers. And they kept all the rules. And what did he say? He said stuff like, you guys are like cleaning the outside of the cup, but the inside's dirty. You're like a tomb that's been painted white, but inside it's full of dead men's bones. See, it's very possible to be a rule keeper and clean on the outside, but be defiled on the inside. And this is where every single one of us has to watch out for that Pharisee bone that we all have. We want to come to church. We want to look the part. And we want to kind of elevate ourselves about others. But what God is looking at is your heart. You know what comes out of your mouth a lot of times exposes what's already in your heart. The jokes we say, the things we talk about exposes what's going on in our life. It really does. And so God is less concerned about looking the religious part and he's more concerned with what's going on in the core of your being, in your heart. Amen? 
So again, kind of that idea of holiness. Okay, so let's um, finish the chapter real quick. Verse 32. This is the law of him who has a discharge for him who has an emission of semen becoming unclean thereby. Also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity, that is for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge and for the man who lies with the woman who is unclean. Boom. Finished it. But we're not quite done. Because you can't read Leviticus 15 without your mind fast-forwarding to Matthew chapter 9, Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 8. In fact, why don't you turn to Mark 5? Mark 5. And there we have Jesus. He's just returned from Gadara, which is like the heathen coast of the Sea of Galilee, where he casts out a legion of demons into a bunch of pigs. You probably remember that story. And in their response, they, the guy who was demon-possessed was sitting, clothed, and in his right mind, and their response was, get out of here. <laughs> they kicked him out. Jesus left, goes back across, just kind of cuts the corner of the Sea of Galilee, lands somewhere on that northern coast, not sure exactly where, but there's a massive crowd waiting to welcome him. He gets there, huge crowd. We'll talk about it in a second. They get there, and... Busting through the crowd, a guy named Jairus, one of the most respected, if not the most respected guy in their town because he was the synagogue ruler. He would have had oversight of all the operations of the synagogue. He would have been well-respected, super, you know, just well-thought-of guy. Threw his all dignity to the wind as he falls on his face before Jesus and says, my little girl who's 12 years old is dying. Come to my house, touch her so you can heal her. Dads, you can only imagine the anguish this man's going through. So it says at this point, we pick it up in in verse um, 21. And Jesus, um, actually, let's skim down to to the middle of verse, or verse 24. He went with him, that is, Jesus went with Jairus, and a great crowd followed him, and they were thronging about him. That literally means pressing him in on every side, like a train in Mexico City. If you've ever been to Mexico City, it's crazy on their trains. Or I've been to a train in Moscow. Literally, in Moscow, you get on the train, and you know, when it stops, it's kind of like this. There were so many people. We were literally pressed up against each other, and when it stopped, you had nothing to hold on to because you just kind of were sandwiched in between people the entire way. That's kind of the idea. There's so many people pressing on and pushing and wanting, you know, and moving this whole kind of thing moving forward, and it goes on to say, um, there was a woman, verse 25, who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Didn't this story just take on new life right now? Here's a woman who has a discharge of blood for 12 years. That means, according to Leviticus 15, she has remained in the unclean condition of her menstrual cycle for 12 years. And everything that applied to her and that one week has gone on for 12 years. That means she can't participate in worship. She can't go to the synagogue. She can't go to Jerusalem to bring a sacrifice. She can't be touched by her husband. She can't, anybody who does touch her is unclean. She is in this absolute state of just being ostracized. And it gets worse. She's living in an unclean state for 12 years And then it says, and 
She suffered much under the physicians. So she's evidently gone not to a doctor, but to doctors, plural, to try to get fixed. And it says she suffered much from them. I did a little bit of reading on this from William Barclay and others who point out that the, the, the methods they would use back there were mostly like concoctions of things to drink or try this salve or do this. But it was guesswork. And a lot of the, the remedies were, were nothing more than superstition. In fact, I, this was literally in the Talmud, which is like the Jewish writings of their, of their culture. This was a remedy for something like this. Um, you were to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen rag in the summer, but it's a, you carry it in a cotton rag in the winter. Well, that'll work. Why don't we have a good leaching while we're at it? You know, like, so... You can only imagine the things that she had gone through, doctor after doctor. Maybe you have something similar. You've had some problem, and you don't know what it is, and you go to doctor after doctor. But this is so infinitely more primitive. And doctors generally didn't even have a good reputation. It's not like today. She's suffering from all the things that they're putting her through, not to mention her dignity, not to mention her whole life is just shut down at this point. And it gets worse. It says, and she spent all that she had. Now she's broke. And it gets even worse because it says she not only didn't get better, she got worse. And this woman, verse 27, heard the reports about Jesus. I like that verse. She heard the reports about Jesus. What does that mean? What did she hear about Jesus? I bet she heard stuff like, he heals lepers. He touches lepers. He heals blind guys. He touched the dead boy and he came back to life. He cast demons out. She heard the reports. I would even venture to say she heard wrong reports about Jesus because there was a lot of wrong information about Jesus floating around out there. Who do men say that I am? They say you're Elijah. They say you're John the Baptist. You know what I'm saying? Like, she probably doesn't even really understand who Jesus really is, but she hears about this guy, Jesus, who heals people and raises the dead. And what does it say? She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, that is to herself, if I touch his garment, I'll be made well. Think this through, ladies and gentlemen. The crowd is pressing on Jesus. There's no room. You're bumping into everybody. That means everybody she's bumping into, if they knew it, she's making them ceremonially unclean. And she's about to go up to a rabbi who some are calling the son of God. And she's going to touch him? Just his garment. That one, by the way, has another little superstition added to it because they thought the garment like maybe like spoke of their authority. And if I could just touch that, there's nothing magical about his garment. But her, in her faith, in her determination, in her limited understanding of Jesus, at least knowing he touches and heals people, I'm going to push through the crowd. She's making everybody else unclean. No doubt about it. Their plan that she had was to touch and run. Dine and ditch. She was not going to stick around. She, her plan was to reach through somebody else's armpit or something unseen, touch and see what happens and get the heck out of there so as not to be detected what she's really up to because she could get in huge trouble. Does that make sense? But she touches him. She touches him. The unclean touching the only clean one. And immediately, verse 29 she was healed from her disease. Verse 29, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed from her disease. She touches him and probably even to her surprise, somehow inside she feels it and she's healed. 
instantaneously. But that's not all that happens. Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him. Immediately, he turns around to the crowd and says, who touched my garments? (laughs) And his disciples said to him, uh... You see the crowd pressing around you, and you're saying, who touched me? He didn't even say, who touched me? He said, who touched my clothes? He looked around to see who had done it, and the woman, knowing that she, what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. In a Luke's account, it says she told him why, the whole story. And he said, daughter, that's, one, that's a very endearing term. It's such a tender term in the Greek language. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I love this story, you guys. She reaches out, touches him. She immediately feels the healing. Jesus evidently feels power going out of him and stops everything and says, whoa, 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 guys, hold on, hold up. Peter, slow down, bro. Who touched my clothes? Can you just see that this actually happened? Like the disciples are like, has he eaten today? Like, does he need a nap? Like, is he in his right mind? Like, and they're like, they call him out. They're like, Jesus, you see the crowd, right? We're all touching your clothes. But what I love is, and we don't get a time stamp on this, it says he looked around to see who had done it. He doesn't say, well, you're right. It says he get, he, he's like, okay, quiet down. How awkward is this? Everyone's like, what's he doing? I don't know. And he's not leaving until he figures it out. I don't, he, maybe he was there a minute. Just, I mean, it was awkward 30 seconds just now. And this woman, she's just like, busted, right? She falls at his feet. How humiliating is this? She tells everyone within earshot that she's been bleeding for 12 years, but that she reached out and touched Jesus, and the second he touched her, she was healed. By the way, I don't think Jesus did this to humiliate her. I think Jesus did this to liberate her. Because, oh, that's so humiliating. Why did Jesus put her on the spot? No, because I don't think he wanted her, you know, skulking off into the shadows, not able to. He's like, no, daughter, you need to understand something. You're clean now. You, you don't have to be worried about being in the shadow. You're fully clean. You can fully touch people. You're totally clean. And you have a testimony now. He was bringing it into the light, not to shame her, but to liberate her and to use her as a testimony to the power of Jesus. Amen. We should never be ashamed of our past in that way, in that regard. I'm ashamed to talk about some of the things I've done. But you know what? We've all done them or thought about doing them. But Jesus has set me free from those things. Amen? And he heals her. Um, In Israel, the last time I was there, last two times, they have a new uh, discovery. Uh, Magdala, right on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee, it is where Mary Magdalene was from. What's significant about that discovery is that they found um, a fir- the remains of a first century um, synagogue. So that's the time of Jesus. Like Jesus taught in all of the synagogues on the Galilee. He would have, without a doubt, been in that synagogue. It is unreal. What's significant about that place is not only that, but they made it uh, this kind of, uh, apart from that, they made this massive like, memorial-type chapel thing. And some artists came in, and they did a rendition of this story. And it's this massive mural as big as this wall. And all you see is ankles and feet from, you know, the top down. 
and you see the finger reaching out. Just the art, the artistry is amazing. It's just like the veins and stretching out, just trying to touch the hem of Jesus's garment. I bought a car. I was going to bring it tonight. I actually bought a, a print of it. It's unreal. Something about this story that just touches my heart. Jesus, the clean one, being touched by the unclean and making the unclean clean. There's two things, and I'll do this fairly quickly, but I don't apologize for, for going a little longer because it's important. Number one, I think we, well, we can learn a lot from why she came and, and how she came. Here's what I mean by that. Why did she come? She came, listen, because she was desperate. There was something in her that she could not fix herself. And she had come to the end of herself and the end of her effort, and there's now very clear that nothing she could do or anybody else could do or any amount of money could do. She needed a divine touch. She was broken and desperate and humble. That's, how, that's why she came. And, and it also kind of bleeds over into how she came. She came with faith. I would even say an immature faith, a childlike faith, because she just heard reports about Jesus. She did not have all the theological points about Jesus down. Does that make sense? He's some popular rabbi from Galilee who's doing a bunch of miraculous things. She wasn't all preoccupied with the hypostatic union and this and that. She just like, I think he's the guy that can help me. She came in faith. And those two things, desperation and faith, are lessons for us. Number one for me in this, and I can't not mention this, to me, isn't this a beautiful picture of salvation? Because in us, we have an incurable disease. And it's only when we come to a place when we realize there's no amount of effort on my part, there's no amount of, of money that can be spent or good deeds or some other mediator or some other person or some other religious system. There's nothing I could ever do in myself to undo the uncleanness in my spirit. I have to come broken and humble and desperate to God. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's the person who understands that they're spiritually bankrupt who is the one that is on the verge of salvation. It's the one who thinks that they're not that bad or compared to other people or they're the ones that are the furthest from salvation because they're still trying to save themselves through their own effort. To, to be saved, you have to come and fall at the feet of Jesus in a sense, at the foot of the cross and say, there's nothing I could ever do there's nothing I could ever buy. There's no amount of effort I could ever expend. I can come solely on the basis of your grace and I need to receive the free gift of salvation that you're offering to me. Amen? Amen. And we gotta come in faith. Salvation is a free gift that we access with the hand of faith. We don't do anything to purchase it but we have to receive it. You can only do one of two things with a gift. Do you understand that? If it's Christmas and I offer you a gift, I paid for the gift and I'm offering it to you. You can do one of two things. You can either receive it or you can reject it. If you offer to buy it from me, you're gonna offend me because it's something I wanna give to you. And if you offer to pay God back through your good works, that's offensive. A, you can never do it and B, it's something he's bought for you. 
Amen? And so you see the picture, we could probably go on and on. And so there's that lesson. And I think it's always good and right to, to, to see those pictures in the story because it's all about Jesus. It's all about God. It's all about what he's done. And like I said last week, we get it twisted and we start to make Christianity into stuff we got to do for God when in reality, it's all about what he's done for us. And all that we do for him is a reaction to what he's done for us. Lastly, it's a picture, I think, of prayer in a lot of ways. How does she come? Why does she come? In desperation and in faith. I was thinking about this. A lot of people touched Jesus' garments, but only one came away with the healing. Because there was just a lot of other people that were in the vicinity of Jesus, bumping up against Jesus, but they weren't reaching out for Jesus. Does that make sense? We can do the same. We can be in the general vicinity of Jesus. We can come to church. We can do the stuff. We can follow, and I'm not, I'm not trying to sound like judgmental about it. I'm just saying I fall into this so often where I'm like, I have this very casual, nonchalant like following of Jesus instead of a desperate pursuit of Jesus. And there's things in my life that I need and I'm hungry for and I desire and I think it's when we come with a sense of desperation. You know, a lot of times we don't even pray. You know why we don't pray? Because we still think we can make it happen. We don't realize that we can do nothing without Jesus. The lack of prayer actually is a spotlight onto where you are with Jesus. A lack of prayer communicates self-reliance instead of God-reliance. And the desperation can come a couple of different ways. It can come through crisis. And praise God, sometimes he uses crises in our lives where the, the bottom falls out or the business and nobody, I'm not saying those things are good. Our health goes down. But oftentimes, isn't it those things that drive us finally to our knees? And we just have to say, I can't do this. I can't do this. And finally, God goes, I know. And we stop, we stop kind of brushing up against Jesus and we start reaching out for Jesus and there's a world of difference. And we gotta come in faith. I am embarrassed at how my lack of faith when I pray. I pray sometimes and I pray and I, I walk away thinking, he's never gonna do that. I think of when Jesus went to his hometown and, and I hate this verse, it says, he could do not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You know what that means? He wanted to do rad, that dated me. He wanted to do amazing things in their midst, but their unbelief kept him from doing what he wanted to do. I don't fully understand that, guys. That's, that's getting into some sovereignty stuff that, I, that blows my mind. But what I know is, is that at the end of this scene, what does he say? Daughter, your faith has made you whole. When's the last time you came in desperate faith to Jesus? And you may not even all totally understand everything there is to know about Jesus, but all you know is he's, he's the only one that can fix this. Let me ask you a question tonight. What's your 12-year issue tonight? Metaphorically speaking. What's your 12-year, so to speak, issue? What's that thing in your life tonight that you've been trying to fix on your own, you've been trying to do in your own power, 
be it your marriage, be it your finances, be it your health, be it your, the, the, the healing of your psyche from wounds that happened to you as a child and abuse and things like that, and you're trying to just muscle through, what if you came to Jesus tonight in desperation and reached out to him and let him touch you and you touched him? And what if he wanted to make you whole tonight? See, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? I am not preaching health, wealth, and prosperity, nor am I saying that he will heal you instantly every time. I'm not saying that. But I am saying this. He might. He, he still does that. Guys, look at me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that our Jesus raised from the dead and that he's alive? This is not a game. He's risen. Our Savior's alive. Like, whatever you're going through tonight, he can fix it. Or he can give you the grace to muscle through it. Either way, he's the answer. And yet we come in, and I'm saying I'm at the front of the line. I'm not pointing at you guys. You hopefully know me better than that. But if you're like me, I can come in and just be so casual in my worship. Shame on me. Shame on us for being so casual in our worship sometimes. And in the way we come to God. It's the last time you just got on your face and you fell down before him and you're like, God, I need a touch from you tonight. You understand what I'm saying? He does this stuff still. I am not, I've already given my disclaimer, but I feel like the need to do it again. Like, I'm not saying like this is some formula and he'll heal you every time. And he'll do, I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is we've gotten too smart for God and we've forgotten that Jesus can do anything, and he's the only one that can. And what do you need tonight? This is the part of the story that all week has just been getting at me. And I felt kind of scared coming in tonight because of this, because I feel like the Lord wants to touch somebody tonight in a special way. And I keep thinking it might have to do something with, and I don't know if this is a word of knowledge or just my own thoughts, I'm thinking it has to do with some kind of childhood hurt and some kind of um, wound that is crippling you and that the Lord can touch in a moment. And so what if we just took a couple moments tonight and just prayed right where you're at? You can go to your knees. If you, want, if you feel like comfortable, come up and, and, and get on your face. I'm going to ask Pastor Steve to come up. I'm going to ask Bob to come up and, and just kind of be up here. Uh, Pastor Kilney too, like come up and just, if, some, if you want somebody to pray with, they would love to pray with you. Jean, would you come up too? Just pray for ladies too, maybe, if you want a lady to pray with. My wife, would you, if you can, come up and just pray with somebody. Um, Anna, didn't see there. Come up too. Um, but if you want somebody to pray with, there'll be people to do that. But if you just want to pray by yourself, come and do that too, okay? Does that make sense, you guys? Yeah. Desperation, humility, faith. That's our Lord. Father, we thank you. We praise you so much for who you are, what you've done. And God, we believe that you're Jesus. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I pray in the name of Jesus Christ right now, Lord, you would just move in this place. Lord, I don't know if you will or not, but Lord, we're gonna come and push through the crowd. We're not gonna let other people keep us from you. We're not gonna keep, let our own pride keep us from you. Oh, I don't wanna go up front. I want people to see me with the need. Lord, help us to put all that stuff to death and just get real with you and come in desperation and in faith. And I pray you would touch and heal people emotionally, physically, spiritually, 
tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.